Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hi, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. And I hope today's podcast guest will bring you some inspiration. I think she is an amazing clinician and she has just done such remarkable work and continues to do remarkable work so that we can be better pediatricians and pediatric clinicians. Dr. Jane Foy has spent more than 35 years in pediatric primary care, public health administration, and medical education. Her special interests include mental health services in pediatric primary care and school settings, access to health care for underserved populations, primary care of children with special health care needs, and residency training in mental health, community pediatrics, and advocacy. Dr. Foy received her BA from Wellesley College and her MD from UNC Chapel Hill School of Medicine, and she completed her residency training in pediatrics at UNC Hospitals. She has held several academic positions, most recently Professor of Pediatrics at Wake Forest School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, before joining Wake Forest's Emeritus Academy in July of 2020. She has been active in the American Academy of Pediatrics for more than 20 years, serving as past chair of the AAP Committee on Psychosocial Aspects of Child and Family Health, chair of the AAP Task Force on Mental Health, member of the AAP Mental Health Leadership Group, member of the AAP Board of Directors, and District 4 Chair. Dr. Foy's publications on mental health include two AAP textbooks, The Mental Health Care of Children and Adolescents, a Guide for Primary Care Clinicians, and Promoting Mental Health in Child and Adolescents, Primary Care Practice and Advocacy. The AAP Policy Statement, Mental Health Competencies for Pediatric Practice, and the Technical Report, Achieving the Mental Health Competencies. Both were published in Pediatrics in 2019. She recently edited a new publication to support clinicians at the front lines. This is called Managing Mental Health Concerns in Pediatrics, a Clinical Support Chart. She currently serves as an associate editor of the AAP Textbook of Pediatric Care and as associate editor of the Mental Health for Pediatric Care Online, or PCO. Dr. Foy's roles in other organizations have included the presidency of the North Carolina Pediatric Society, the co-founder and director of the School Health Alliance for Forsyth County, and the medical director of the Northwest Community Care Medicaid Network from 2011 to 2014. I am so grateful that Dr. Foy made some time for us today, and I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Hi, Jane. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy person, and I really appreciate your willingness to come to the show. So I always start out with your journey and path into pediatrics, and then really, how did it lead into mental health work? I was drawn to pediatrics initially because I was drawn to pediatricians. Floyd Denny, who was the chair at UNC Chapel Hill when I attended med school, 
ran a really wonderful department and both the residents and the faculty were welcoming and inclusive. I was one of just six women in my class of 65. So that meant a lot to me at the time. It still means the world to me. I, I love having colleagues who are also friends and fun, fun people to be around. So I never look back about that choice to go into pediatrics. As for my mental health work, I had little formal mental health training myself. Early in my career, I did my best to meet my patients' social and mental health needs through collaboration with other disciplines. So my, my formative practice experience was a, a 15-year period in general pediatrics in Greensboro, North Carolina, where I served as the medical director of the child health program in the Guilford County Health Department. We served virtually all the Medicaid and uninsured children of our community. When we started out, the clinics were just chaotic. Patients all showed up at once and each took a number. There were just two of us pediatricians at the outset. We were both working part-time, but over several years, we added other pediatricians and ended up with a really wonderful staff. And then we also worked with nurse practitioners who knew many of the, the patients and who knew the community. There were social workers and public health nurses in our program, but they mainly functioned separately in school or community settings and not in the clinic. So our practice was just very challenging and, and diverse. I think today we would uh, say that virtually all of our patients had adverse childhood experiences. Mm. Um, they all lived in poverty. All the foster children uh, going into foster care in the community came to our clinic. We had many African-American children who lived in the county's two cities, Greensboro and High Point. Um, many of them were in public housing projects and unsafe neighborhoods. We also took care of refugees who were resettling in our area. We had lots of uh, Southeast Asian refugees settled by the Lutheran Family Services in our community. There were the language barriers that we struggled with. And, and many of the children also had medical complexity. Many had poorly controlled asthma and epilepsy, for example. Um, we had one of the first children infected with HIV in our practice. I had a patient, for example, with methylmalonic aciduria who required frequent hospitalizations for metabolic crises. And many of, of the children and adolescents we served struggled in school. So we realized that we just couldn't manage our patients without help from other disciplines. And we sort of restructured our clinics. We began giving appointments to the patients, which was an important first step for their dignity, as well as our just keeping some, some measure of control over what was happening around us. And then we organized ourselves into what we called team-directed care clinics for the children with the complex needs, particularly. And we brought our social workers into the clinic as colleagues. So we worked along with them and the nurse practitioners and then we created linkages to our school and community nurses who would gather data and observations from home and school and helped us to monitor their care. We did a preclinic review of all the children we were going to be seeing in that day, conferenced about them together. The social workers all often prompted us on things they knew about the family that we didn't know, and that was tremendously helpful. Then we had a sort of plan when the, when the children arrived. And then we did a post-clinic wrap-up together, too, and um, worked out next steps. So we didn't do routine mental health screening at that time, but I know that if we had, we would have been absolutely overwhelmed with what we would have found. I think many of our patients and their parents were probably anxious and depressed 
but it was the externalizers that came to our attention, as you can imagine. The preschool children who were expelled from preschool or childcare because of their behavior, the school-aged child with behavior problems who either the teachers demanded medication for the child or the child was suspended or expelled. And of course, often without any kind of psychological evaluation at the time, the, the school psychologists were also overwhelmed. And, and there was a domino effect of these sort of crises with the children on the families. So um, we first focused on these children with the externalizing problems. The young children went predominantly to a, a developmental evaluation center nearby. We, we were able to refer them and they did a good job. It was a strong system. And there was an early intervention program that did a, did a decent job with those kids. And our community nurses helped us and helped the families navigate. But it was the older children that we really struggled with because our mental health system was just so difficult to access. It was stigmatizing. It was culturally very foreign to even those who lived in our community. And when we did find a mental health problem and referred a child or family there, they rarely got there. And if they did, they didn't stay. So what we came to realize is that the schools were really our default mental health system. And that that turned out to be the case virtually all over our state. And so we began working with the schools to try to address the needs, particularly of that group of students that were having behavior and attention problems in school. The schools were also not very well equipped to deal with this, but there was this wonderful director of student services named Mary Hoyle, who we worked very closely and became very close friends over the years. And um, together, we worked out a community protocol for managing kids that were having difficulties, uh, behavioral difficulties in school. So we agreed with each other. We, we had almost an adversarial relationship with the schools. Pediatricians did when we started out. I know that's probably familiar to you, but we insisted that children have full psychological tests and they demanded medication. And, you know, it's just this cycle So we each agreed uh, on a compromise. We didn't demand a full psychological assessment if they would provide some kind of screening, a screening of intellectual ability and also educational attainment. So so we agreed on two measures of that. And they agreed they wouldn't demand medication before there had been a complete evaluation. And we began to systematically exchange information, work together, school nurses intervened. And um, long story short, that proved to be a very useful uh, situation. And we're now almost 30 years from beginning that. And I I no longer work in Greensboro, but I understand it's still in effect. So I'm very proud about that. I think we made a dent um, in the problems that these disruptive students were having, not just because they, I think they, they got the help they needed in the school. Many of them, of course, had learning disabilities. Some of them had ADHD and so forth but also because I think many of them had experienced trauma already in their lives and that this, you know, suspension and um, expulsion from school, these were additional traumas that I I hope to think that, I like to think that we prevented from happening for many of these kids. Then from that, I went on to work on the school-based health center concept. Uh, We got an early Robert Wood Johnson Foundation grant that we Um, used to put a multidisciplinary clinic in an alternative school that served pregnant and parenting students and students who were unsuccessful in their homeschools. And uh, there again, it was that multidisciplinary model that was the answer because we as pediatricians just really didn't have the skills that we needed at that time to, to help those kids. 
but it, the, then my journey took me ultimately to academics. I left uh, Greensboro after 15 years there. And um, my focus turned to training medical students and uh, also to working with community physicians um, who had trained there. We, I worked with their AHEC to do continuing medical education. And again, I partnered with schools. We developed a school health alliance that critical services in schools, but with mental health and comprehensive school-based services. And so in that way, I sort of fulfilled my, my need to establish these new uh, collaborative models. And it, uh, through a grant, I was able to uh, hire a, a wonderful psychologist, Jane Williams, who helped uh, both with implementation and with evaluation of some of these projects. So that was a great help. I love what um, you're. I love what you're describing because it. I mean, first of all, I, it's I'm visualizing this this space. I'm visualizing the chaos that initially started, and then as you started to put these bits and pieces, and you know, I think the thing that strikes me is that you weren't going it alone. It wasn't your job to mm-hmm. do all this by yourself, which I think some of us, you know, feel like. I, I need to screen. That's my job. I'm supposed to do that. And then I find these problems or the problem comes to, you know, the problems, I don't mean the child's the problem, but the child comes to the office with these concerns and now it's mine to fix and I've got no help. But you describe this, you know, lovely system that I wish that was, you know, kind of present in all practices in some way, shape or form, but you spent a lot of time and sounds like a lot of work to make this happen. Well, as you say, I had a lot of help. And um, the other thing that was so supportive and helpful to me, I became very active in our North Carolina chapter of the AP, uh, which we call the North Carolina Pediatric Society. And I found many kindred spirits there who were working in their own communities in a similar way. I found, uh, for example, Dave Taylor, he went on to become a, a president of the AAP, um, was very interested in school-based health. And um, he also got a Robert Wood Johnson grant and we were able to collaborate in many ways. So my work at the state level led to involvement in national AAP. And that's when I was able to sort of take some of these ideas to scale and also begin working on uh, some of the AAP's strategies for supporting pediatricians. I highly recommend to anyone who's who's listening that you look to the AP and to your colleagues in the state chapter to help you with naughty problems. Exactly. I mean, honestly, that's sort of how I came to this in that, I don't know, I was always fascinated with the mental health piece because it felt so important and also interesting in terms of you really dive into the family because you are learning about them. And, you know, so I called our state chapter and said, can I join the mental health committee? And there wasn't one. So I was, okay. I was became committee, chair, let me guess. <laughs> I was the committee of one. And so, you know, we did some things and then I got into the AAP leadership at our chapter, which led to going to an annual leadership forum at the national, at which point I was hooked. And I just, my goal now is to figure out how to stay involved because I love it so much. And I mean, like, I think the biggest thing for me is meeting people like you, you know, across the country, like, oh, I have a friend that's in, you know, another state and this is what they're doing and I could call them and and that feels awesome. So, well, I want to turn a little bit to you know, this idea of mental health competencies. And, and I remember reading in some of the papers that you wrote about, 
and I think we know this, you know, these children are coming to us and a huge number don't get treatment. I think the number was 75%, which just sounds atrocious. And, you know, we're, I think traditional pediatrics, we focus so much on things like infectious disease and sort of hospital-based medical care and mental health training just wasn't part of it. I mean, when I trained, I mean, I think the only mental health training that fell in our lap was ADHD, you know, and we had Ritalin and a couple of other things, you know, and then down the road came SSRIs and that sort of began to open up like, oh, maybe there are some things. Unfortunately, I think then we start thinking that all of mental health means I have to know how to prescribe meds. And I don't know, the longer I did my work, the more I was like, this isn't all about medications. I mean, it's a piece of it. But, you know, the idea of competencies is a whole different way of looking at it. So so you you were part of writing this policy statement and a technical report on mental health competencies. And I was wondering if you could share like why that why that's so important and, and what that's about. Well, I think the, the driving force is just the increasing mental health morbidity and even mortality in pediatric populations. Suicide is now the second leading cause of death in children from age 10 up. So it, it's terrifying. I think the other piece is that the, the importance of mental health is not just about primary care pediatrics. And that was the reason we revised the policy statement in, in uh, 2019. We had originally focused our original statement on competencies on the primary care pediatrician. But many uh, subspecialists work with children over, over time. And we know that children with chronic illness are, are very likely to have mental health comorbidities that drive their use of resources and drive their parents' distress and, and clinicians' distress as well. So we've also come to learn in the time since we wrote the original policy about the role of early trauma on mental health and both on both the somatic and mental uh, health of children over, over their lifetime, really, right into adulthood. The other thing that compelled us to write uh, this new version of the competencies was that new models of uh, payment, value-based payment, for example, will necessitate that we integrate mental health into our practice um, because we won't be successful in creating greater value for our patients unless we can comprehensively address both their mental and medical needs. So for all those reasons and just the ongoing uh, reports from our members that they still don't feel confident in providing mental health services and don't feel that they were adequately trained. We embarked on this new, on this revision of the competency statement. In your work, you talked about the pediatric advantage, and I I think that makes a lot of sense. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Well, by this we mean that our longitudinal relationship with families. This is true of both primary care physicians and subspecialists gives us a bond of trust with our patients. And it, it turns out that a bond of trust with a clinician is probably the most powerful intervention in um, effective mental health care. So this just sort of falls in our laps in, in many instances. We also have that developmental framework that helps us to understand how the family and the child change over time and, and how 
later experiences build on early ones. And I think that's part of our advantage. We have a warm, non-stigmatizing environment in our practices. And I think families, the children might fear the shots, but I think they typically have affection for us and for our staffs. And also, I want to mention that we have opportunities for prevention and then early intervention when problems are just emerging. And these are opportunities that mental health specialists simply don't have. They, they receive children and families who have already or often are already in crisis and have other, you know, sort of well-developed mental health difficulties by the time they surface. But we have these preventive opportunities. So I think these are wonderful advantages for us. I think we are very well suited to be at the front lines and to help families at the very early stages of emerging mental health difficulties. And I think that's, again, where I was you know, going with that, I think we're better than what we think because of those relationships. And I mean, I too went into pediatrics because I love pediatricians. I, you know, I, we're not fancy people, you know, people puke and pee and poop on us and, right. you know, you we can only get, have so much dignity, right? Right. I mean, you get kind of down on the floor and, and I think because of that, maybe we're accessible. At least I like to think so, but so you know, I think that there are barriers to doing this work, I, although it is honestly, I don't know how you can separate it out, but there just feels like there's a lot of fear about diving into that and, you know, how we deliver that kind of optimal care. And you talk about in the paper um, about this kind of culture that we have that fear of asking, I fear that I don't know. I don't have time, I can't afford it, which are truly concerns. I mean, in the work I've done, I've heard that too, not only from pediatric colleagues, but our adult medicine colleagues, like, I just don't have time. But I remember a conversation I had with an orthopedic surgeon who was asking me about suicide and risks to his patients and feeling the need to ask. And, um, you know, I thought, wow, you know, how's an orthopedic surgeon diving into this? But, you know, if you replace a hip and the person kills themselves, well, you, your work was, you know, not, it didn't matter. So you really need to know, is this person okay before I do these big procedures? So I, that always struck me that, you know, this is kind of a, a culture change. Any thoughts on that? I think it is a culture change, and I do think the barriers of low confidence and inadequate training are paramount. An insufficient time, increasingly, pediatricians don't get to set their own pace. Many of our practices are owned by larger systems who have certain expectations about our productivity, our pace. But I think the most important perception to address at a systems level is that that we can't be paid for this activity because in fact, we can and should be paid. And um, I thought I would mention the advocacy effort that we did in North Carolina to change our Medicaid system in order to address that barrier because that might be of interest to some of our listeners. When I became president of our North Carolina chapter in 1998, our members thought that lack of payment for the mental health services they provided was one of our top priorities. Most of them were struggling to care for children with mental health practices, uh, problems without social workers in their practice, of course. And um, it was very d- difficult to access mental health care. The only 
um, mental health care available to Medicaid patients in North Carolina was in public mental health outpatient clinics. And these had daunting intake procedures. They were very stigmatizing. And as I've mentioned before, a few kids got there unless they were in absolute crisis and then they don't, they didn't stay once the crisis was resolved. And, and then pediatricians who attempted to fill that gap by caring for those kids themselves just couldn't get paid for that work. A group of us, committee chairs in the Peds Society, got together with other child advocates, and we began meeting with uh, state government officials from the Department of Health and Human Services. We met in a library in Burlington, North Carolina, which was right off Interstate 40, which traverses our state, so that people from a distance from Asheville and the coast could also participate. We had good geographic representation. And we developed a a white paper on mental health, expressing our concerns about poor access for Medicaid enrollees, and then proposing some changes that would help us to address the problem. It happened that we had a pediatrician, Dave Bruton, who was serving as Secretary of Health and Human Services at the time. And he became interested in these efforts, and he greased the wheels for us. He brought our white paper to the attention of the Medicaid director, who was then a wonderful man named Dick Peruzzi. And soon we were meeting in Raleigh, our state capital, in the Medicaid administration building right down the hall from Dick's office. Dick, it it turned out, had a great interest in working with pediatricians on oral health. And in a sort of quid pro quo, we helped him to launch a dental varnish program in pediatric practices across the state. And he helped us to develop and implement new mental health policies. (laughs) So that worked out well for all of us. And he was pleased with the result as, as we were too. So the the way that worked, first of all, created a policy that mental health professionals could be credentialed to serve Medicaid patients outside the public mental health system. So it, in essence, broke the monopoly of the public uh, mental health system in, in serving Medicaid patients. Pediatricians could refer directly to mental health providers, not going through a laborious um, intake procedure. We could develop relationships with them. And we could even bring the mental health professionals into our practice and be paid for up to six visits without a diagnosis, which is so important because in pediatrics, obviously, we don't have these long two-hour evaluation appointments for our, our patients. We do the evaluation incrementally. We could also have 26 visits, either ourselves with our patients or the mental health uh, professional could without management by the mental health system. So that 26 unmanaged visits, ultimately that was reduced to 16 unmanaged visits because very few children went past that that number. And um, we also got the ability to bill for employed mental health professionals. So what happened through those policy changes is it really broke down a lot of the barriers or the perceived barriers in some cases that we just couldn't be um, compensated for that work. And it, enma- it enabled many of us to hire mental health professionals in our practice. And it began to spread across the state. Many, many practices were able to, to do that. I should mention the colleagues who helped to lead that work. That include um, Marion Earls, who has been a colleague ever since she was a residency in that first clinic that I described to you, David Horowitz. And then Steve Shore was the executive director of our North Carolina Pediatric Society and happened to be a social worker by training. So he was invaluable in making all these things happen. 
But together, we really made a lot of improvement in the state's Medicaid program. And we've lost some of that ground in the recent political environment. I'll be the first to admit that. But there are still practices who have the co-located mental health professionals that were established during that period, and, and they're committed to sustaining them. So I just refer you all to that. We, we describe that work in an article in pediatrics. And um, if these kinds of barriers are an issue, folks might find that helpful. I have a question for you. So with all of this mental health interest, I mean, the AAP, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry have declared a, you know, a state of emergency for mental health. And then the Surgeon General made a statement. And so I'm hoping that there are funds. How do you make sure that those funds get spent in an appropriate way? Is this something that the AAP is advocating for? Not, you know, going beyond making the statement to say, you know, we have some solutions for how this money could be spent. Do you see that that will happen? I think it's happening already. We have frequent contact. I'm a member of the Mental Health Leadership Work Group chaired by Marian Earls now and have been for a number of years. We also are joined regularly by members of the of our um, federal government affairs staff, and they present to us bills that are presented, being presented and, and are passing through Congress at any given time. We just had a, a recent opportunity, for example, to comment on three of them. We share experiences. We find out more details. We provide them with documentation that they might need to make better arguments. And I think um, we have a rather effective way of influencing the, the ways that, that our um, public dollars are spent. That doesn't mean to say we're always successful, but I think we've had a very significant impact. I, I think that's one of AAP's strengths. Well, I do think, you know, I mean, the AAP has been quoted so much in the last two years because of our advocacy for children. And I think we have a a really, you know, kind of a powerhouse for leadership right now with, you know, Dr. Lee Beers and all of her work that she's done on integrated behavioral health. You have Dr. Moira Salaji, who's done just incredible work on the foster care side. And then Dr. Sandy Chung, who is also has done so much and really has a lot of insight on kind of the financing piece of it. So it's kind of like this trifecta of I think leadership. So. Yeah, Sandy, and Sandy is a member of my district, and so I've known her for years. She's a tremendous talent and has been so effective in Virginia at uh, creating these sorts of systems. So you need to do another podcast with Sandy. Right, right. Well, so I kind of want to bring it back down to one of the other barriers that you mentioned, because I I think it's really true, is this low self-confidence. And one of the things that you mentioned in the paper was, you know, that education's not enough, but it's kind of where you have to start. I mean, that's sort of our training is that way. And, And I wonder, too, if you look at residency training, are they getting enough? I, I still feel like I see younger trainees that also don't feel confident. And I do think people get really hung up on psychopharmacology. I, I think that there's this huge fear that if I take care of you know people with mental health, I have to be an expert in psychopharm. And I think you have to be good enough and, and know where to get help. But what do you think about this education, building self-confidence and, and that piece? Brings me to you know, just what you were saying. Psychopharm is not the whole story. In the competency statement, we did point out that certain psychopharmacologic agents are, are more 
appropriate, perhaps, uh, safer to use in primary care than others. And um, we feel there's a good safety profile, good experience with the ADHD drugs and also with the SSRIs. Beyond that, most pediatricians would need special training. But the other reality is that psychosocial treatments are very well evaluated and effective. The research about those treatments is not well disseminated in pediatrics. We do have a new uh, book that's just come out about that from the AAP. But many of those types of therapies can be distilled into brief interventions. And I know you expressed some interest in learning more about those. And they, they are very intuitive to pediatricians. And I think they would be much less daunting to our trainees. They are transdiagnostic. In other words, it, it, you don't need to wait and have a DSM-5 uh, diagnosis before you implement them. They are relevant and helpful across diagnostic categories. They fall into several categories. The first is common factors. Larry Wisso and Anna Godomsky introduced this at a, a CME years ago, and I think it was 2010 or so. And I think one can think about these as ways to build the therapeutic alliance that we talked about, that build the strength of that trust between the therapist and the family. We developed the mnemonic HELP to describe common factors, giving the family hope, expressing empathy, using language that they can understand, not professional, you know, technical labels, and then asking their permission to, much as you do with um, motivational interviewing, before you proceed into sensitive areas and before you are prescriptive about what needs to happen yet uh, next, and then involving the family in creating that plan. In addition, uh, there are methods to help manage the emotions that might disrupt a visit, such as anger, ambivalence, hopelessness, conflict in the family, and then barriers to behavior change and help-seeking, because without those, even if you decide that the child needs help from a mental health specialist, they may not get ever get there if you don't address whatever the barriers are that keep them from, from completing that referral. Lastly, I'll mention that there are techniques to keep the visit focused and practical and organized, and probably the most important technique of all is how to close a visit supportively when it needs to be closed. I mean, realistically, we only have 10 or 15 minutes to, to address a problem that surfaces in a clinic visit. And um, I, th I think that's a critical skill. The next set of uh, skills is often called common elements because it's common elements of effective evidence-based psychosocial interventions. And it's, this is techniques and, and approaches that are effective across a class of related conditions, for example, anxiety disorders. And an example of that kind of intervention would be gradual exposure to a feared activity or object in order to help a child overcome avoidance of that object. And it's coping instead of avoidance. Um, and that's, that's a critical piece of anxiety treatment. There are some complementary therapies that are very useful in pediatrics. These are also evidence-based relaxation techniques, other self-regulation therapies, these help to manage stress and to build resilience to trauma and social adversities. And then there are universal brief interventions, things like special time set aside for parent and child to, to do an activity of the child's choice, ideally that doesn't involve a screen, <laughs> reading together, sharing outdoor time, 
limits on screen time, getting sufficient sleep. So there are lots of things that we can do in these brief interventions that I think will help our feeling of of efficacy as we interact with our patients. Well, and I think some of those things, I mean, I was fortunate enough, we had an external practicum site in my office, mostly because I was so desperate for help and reached out to our university and they had doctoral students in clinical psychology and they needed some place to be and I needed them. And, you know, so they taught me some some simple things, some basic psychoed, you know, kind of talking about like depression as a downward spiral and working your way back up. Things like grounding techniques, like the five senses, you know, you know, five things I can see, four things I can hear, and that breathing, square breathing, peace breathing, you know, and that stuff, you can show somebody how to do that in your office and it doesn't take very long and can be super effective. Um, and it's something parents can do with their kids too. Of course, um, staff members can be trained to teach those techniques as well. And many of them now lend themselves to telehealth. And um, that I think that's a, a tremendous new opportunity or, or at least newly accessible opportunity that COVID has brought us. And I think telehealth can be very effective in addressing mental health issues and in monitoring them also over time. Well, in thinking about these brief interventions, I I know you have a new publication, the Managing Mental Health Concerns in Pediatrics, this clinical support chart, and it does include a description of these brief interventions. There was one I really loved, the cheer up model um, that was just kind of basic things that you can, but it was a nice way to remember it. Can you describe a little bit about what this, you know, this support chart is? In 2018, we put out two mental health textbooks of AAP Department of Publishing that I had the tremendous privilege of editing. We had absolutely amazing contributions from almost 100 authors. At the urging of that of the same publication staff member, Carrie Peters, who helped me through those textbooks, we decided to gather the highlights from the two textbooks and put them into a very accessible sort of point of care format. And that's what this support chart is. It follows the same format. There's one red book. There's one about well-child supervision. There, there, there are others. There's one about healthy weight. And now this one. It's divided into four sections. It has causes for concern, kind of goes over what's likely to surface at the visit that should trigger thoughts about a mental health difficulty. What is your first response? Uh, It begins with common factors and other universal interventions. It then leads you through decision-making about whether a further evaluation is needed, who should provide it, et cetera. Then it goes into symptomatic care, What do you do when the predominant symptom is low mood or when the predominant symptom is disruptive behavior? What then? And it gives you options for approaches that are very doable in in the examining room and usually well-received if one has prepared with these common factors approaches that tighten that bond between the clinician and the family. Yeah, I think it's just a nice reference so that you could you know, sit down with your staff and your partners and look at, you know, okay, let's talk about how we're kind of integrating this mental health piece. How are we going to screen? What do we do if they're positives? Do we have, you know, some tools and strategies really for how to manage that? And, you know, again, I think for a lot of us, it's when we're thinking about mental health concerns and, 
you know, we haven't even talked about social determinants of health, but when we start asking those hard questions, that it's this Pandora's box. And one of the the things that I really like that I think would make sense to people is this idea of approaching this like we do fevers, you know, that you you start out with, you know, kind of this, you know, assessment, maybe watchful waiting, you know, that it isn't like you got to do it all the first time. Um, I couldn't agree more. Of course, triage for emergencies is an important first step. Sure. sure. But having crossed that and, and determined that nothing urgent is about to happen or could happen, uh, you're exactly right. It's a layered approach. And one can start with some simple education to the parent about how to manage the situation, see how things go, have the child back, give them some additional things to try, have them keep a diary so that you have a better understanding, get reports from the school or the child care center so that you have more insight into what's going on in these other environments. So it's iterative. The, the assessment is iterative. And then determining the effective approaches is also an iterative process. We didn't talk about things that that are helpful in the practice. And I did want to mention a couple of other things along that line. I, I strongly recommend that people who are doing this work have a practice registry if they don't already have one and if it's not automated through their EHR. Sometimes it has to be created manually. But with, with this kind of work, as with, with work with any child with uh, special health care needs, which I consider these children to be, it's important that you have office systems to monitor, schedule them, determine how long a visit, and, such, and so forth. So on that registry, one can put the names of children who test positive on a screening test, who have a referral from the school, who have a, an active mental health concern, who require medication. All of those things are, are necessary to follow up. And then with that registry is a, with each of those items is a protocol for the clinic staff to follow, how frequently they need to be seen, what symptoms in follow-up need to trigger additional actions and so forth. So um, also I think every practice needs a directory of community resources and ideally relationships with the key providers of those resources and um, effective coding and billing strategies. And, and then we come back to the whole business of sustaining the services that you do provide. That's extremely important. And in all of those areas, we have some excellent AP resources to help clinicians make those practice changes. Yeah. And I think those are doable things, but, you know, you have to sort of, I think, start thinking about it in a kind of a holistic fashion about what's our practice look like? Where do we start? And I like this, you know, it's kind of an organization of that. Um, One of the things that we were able to do in our community was we had these partner kind of partner partnership meetings, and we would invite different groups into town so that we got to know our mental health providers. I started working with social workers that we were able to integrate into our practices and the social workers and I did field trips to our psych hospitals just so we could improve our communication because it was really an issue. I I do have another um, podcast that I did with Dr. John Strauss and Dr. Sheila Marcus on these child psychiatry access programs. And that's a whole nother episode that talks about, you know, there is help out there. I think so much of the time we really wish that we could just hand this off. 
but it has to be a partnership. There's just no capacity to have every child see a child psychiatrist, and nor do they need that because there's so much that we can do. But we do need some support and handholding and friendship with child psychiatry. These child psychiatry access programs are just an, an excellent way to support not only the clinical care, but the, the education, the training of in real time of pediatricians who are taking this work on. So I can't say enough about that. We have some wonderful experience locally. Uh, Dr. Strauss came to Winston-Salem and helped us think through um, Child Psychiatry Access Project. We actually put in a school and, and gave access to the school psychologists and social workers to make referrals to that clinic, as well as the pediatric clinicians in the community. And, and that's been a very successful model as well. Yeah, for me, it was a game changer. I think it helped me be able to, I mean, I felt pretty comfortable with, you know, ADHD meds and SSRIs. And sometimes we inherit kids that are on other psychotropics and we're expected to manage them. And that's where I really found them to be helpful. And honestly, it changed some of my practice, my, my prescribing practices for the better. And I had somebody, even if I was going to use an atypical, it had somebody I could talk to about that. So I felt more confident and, mm -hmm. and just to, you know, make sure that I was using them appropriately and monitoring. And, and so I didn't have to go it alone. And plus, it was like having new friends, to be honest with you, because, you know, you get to know who they are and they were just so helpful. And, you know, these psychiatry access programs are in, I believe, all but four states. So I think a big advocacy issue for those who don't have one in their state is, you know, start working to get that in. And but I, I cannot emphasize enough how important those are to all of us. Well, listen, this has been so helpful, and I, I love what you've done, and I hope that this could translate nationally. Wouldn't it be great if we just had this major overhaul and that this was just, you know, part of what we do and expected, you know, by insurance companies and, you know, the policymakers that this is, of course, what we need for children and that we would be supported in all ways so that we could do that really well, because I do think we're good at that. So in closing, I always ask my guests, if you could go back and talk to yourself when you were a resident, what advice would you give yourself? Well, I think, first of all, just say, listen to your instincts and also listen to your patients and follow them. I think the other message would be when you do encounter obstacles in getting accomplished what you want to accomplish, look to others. Just don't suffer alone. I think a partnership with people in your community, a partnership with pediatric colleagues at the chapter level or at in national AP can make all the difference. So you're not alone. Yeah, having friends is important <laughs> in all aspects of your life. And there's a great phrase in the zero suicide world about, you know, that suicide prevention is not the heroic efforts of a single individual and that it is not your responsibility to do it all by yourself because you can't. So I, I love that advice and I think it's well taken. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate your wisdom and I'm so well, glad you that so you're... Well, I'm so glad that you're at the AAP putting out this information for folks as references because we need that to fall back on. And, and I hope that our trainees will get this kind of training on the front end. So when they get into practice, they're like, yeah, I got this. I know what to do. It's not like a big shocker. It's like, you know, you come in wheezing and 
yeah, I know what to do. And, oh, you're feeling anxious? Okay. You know, I got this. So, well, thanks again, Jane. I so appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. What a great conversation. I am so inspired by her, and I hope you are too. So here's my takeaways. Number one, Dr. Foy is an amazing visionary thinker, and she's such a doer. She started doing integrated behavioral health and collaborative mental health care long before it was a thing. Number two, key to the work was creating team models. The schools were looked at as the default mental health system, and rather than being adversarial with the school, she partnered up. Number three, for children who are identified as having a mental health concern, 75% do not get care. We are in a position to change that narrative, but we have to know how. Number four, this requires a culture change. The change being that pediatrics is the place for mental health work. But remember, we don't have to go it alone. And in fact, we really shouldn't. We, we need other experts. Number five, we have, as Dr. Foy puts it, the pediatric advantage, the sweet spot, because we have longitudinal relationships and a developmental framework that we rock. And we have a preventive care position. And this builds trust with the families we serve, and, and it honestly can change the trajectory for a child and in the long run, a community. Number six, the barriers to providing mental health care and primary care are familiar. Low self-confidence of the clinician and our own knowledge, inadequate training, and poor reimbursement for our time. Dr. Foy described an advocacy initiative in North Carolina where a group of pediatric leaders worked with their Department of Health and Human Services and Medicaid to pay for care. In a value-based world, this will be important to us. So an important opportunity for all of us is national, state, and local advocacy. Our voices need to be heard so that we can do this work. Number seven, it feels like the time is ripe for change. Everyone knows and is talking about the mental health crisis. I mean, it's on the news every night. It's in the newspapers. It's everywhere. And we can be a part of the solution, but system change has to occur to make it feasible. Number eight, approaching mental health concerns could be reframed like we approach a fever. Is it an emergency? Is it sepsis? Then we, perce- then we proceed to emergency care. Is the child suicidal? Okay, that's an emergency. But if it's not an emergency, we follow the model we all know. There's an initial visit. What's the problem? A follow-up. How are they doing, you know, in a day or two or whatever the time frame is needed? And we obtain further information if the problem continues. So, you know, do you get a CBC? In the mental health world, that may be obtaining more information for, from the schools, for example. We do some brief interventions, um, and in the mental health clinical support chart, there are lots of details about what that looks like, and then referral when needed. And as I've said over and over, we don't need to go this alone, and it also doesn't have to be fixed in one visit. A lot of times these problems have been going on for a long time, and the kids have been struggling in school, and the idea that we should and could fix it in one visit is, you know, it's just not realistic. And we have to be able to explain that to families in a, a compassionate way that this is something that has evolved over time and is going to take time to address. Number nine, brief interventions begin with help, offer hope, listen with empathy, 
Use lay language and ask permission. Number 10. Next up, you can use what is described as the cheer-up model, and this offers really basic strategies. Catch kids being good, have fun together, or as Dr. Foy describes it in some of the work she's done is time in. Eat and exercise as a family. Establish healthy routines for sleep, media use, outdoor activities, reading. Reduce stress and learn relaxation techniques. Use help from family, friends, and professionals. And practice gratitude and kindness. We all need that, especially now. Number 11, fear not. Psychopharm is not the whole story, and don't let that get in the way of helping. This is a perfect opportunity for education. Check out podcast episodes number 29, 32, 44, and 45 if you want more information on Psychopharm. And of course, reach out to your child psychiatry access programs. Every state except for Ohio, South Dakota, Idaho, and Arizona have these. And you can look at the website nncpap.org, and it's in the show notes to find your map. To learn more about state CPAPs, you know, you want to partner up with your AAP chapter, take a listen to episode number 73, and start lobbying your state leaders. Number 12, so where can you start today, right now? Meet with your partners and staff and go over your current process and reassess and and look for the champions in your practice. Who are the providers that are really interested? Are there some nurses or MAs? What about your office manager, nurse leader? And pull those people together so that you can come up with a process that's going to work for you. Then create a practice registry so you know who the children are that have mental health concerns. And then you can really, you know, begin to plug in resources and pathways for their care. Pull together a list of community resources. And and in fact, you might even invite some of them into your practice. You could invite somebody from um, a food pantry to talk about what's available in your community. Figure out coding and billing and bill for your time. And finally, check out all the AAP resources that are in the show notes. Number 13, just do it. You've got this. You can do it. You're so good at what you do. And I believe in you because I've worked with many of you and I know that you have lots of skills and you can do this for kids. I would like you to um, take a listen. Please rate and review. Share this with your friends. If you are interested in making some practice changes and you want some help, please check out my website at www.medicalbhs.com and I would be happy to help sort things out. Take care and please join me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.